0: So we will continue on um, with Santi Deva and uh, you know looking at uh, why do we think we're the most important one? Yeah. I was, you know, I've been thinking about this lately. <laughs> I have lots of reasons <laughs> why I'm the most important one. Very good reasons. But uh, I was thinking this morning that we we just naturally think this, you know. It's not something that's even taught to us. And this is, I think, part of the meaning of a, an innate affliction, you know, this attachment to self um, here in, in the sense uh, nobody teaches us, you know, from the time we're infants there's I want there's this thing about the self from the time we're infants, there's also uh sharing, and there's also empathy, yeah, so uh it, it's quite interesting, you know we usually think, oh, babies are innocent. I'm not quite sure what innocent means, yeah. If it means they've never created any negative karma, or they don't have any wrong views, uh, no. You know, they're bringing in a lot of stuff from previous lives. But they're they're bringing in, we're bringing in, when we're reborn, uh, you know, this incredible self-grasping and self-centeredness yeah. And, and then we're also bringing in, uh, kindness, wanting to share some feeling of generosity. And if we look at our lives, kind of these two things are always at a, <laughs> at an interplay. And we don't know which way to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many times in your life do you find, a? a an inside uh, argument between I, I want to help, my values tell me that helping is a good thing, yeah, I should help, but I don't really feel like it. You know, it's just too much energy. Yeah. And so there's that phrase, I don't feel like it. So that's another one of the ones. You know, we're getting all these little phrases that we repeat to ourselves like mantra that we really need to stop and look at. Like, it's not fair. What in the world does that mean? That's actually another, you know, yeah, it, it's in cahoots with I don't feel like it. Yeah, yeah. They, they they, have, it's not fair means I want it and I'm not getting it. I don't feel like it means I'm getting it, but I don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And And then behind those are, you know, a... Genuine uh, a feeling of recognizing others' humanity and our commonality and a feeling of empathy. and that comes quite naturally and generosity. I mean, you could see what's happening in well, it's interesting what's happening in Turkey right now after the earthquake. now they 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 have no idea how many people have been killed because there's so many places where just. Building after building is flattened in cities. They're, they're saying 23,000 now. That's huge, you know, but, and, but more is expected because they can't get to the bodies. Okay. So on one hand, what you see is people who are total strangers helping each other. You know, they hear somebody calling out under the concrete. They go and help. Yeah, as best as they can, even they don't. They're not quite sure what to do. They go and get help. Okay, so there's this natural feeling of, you know, we for, we forget all that other stuff of well, you lived above me and I always were dropping your things and made too much noise, or you played your radio too loud. You know, it, you forget about that stuff in tragedies, and you know the basic feeling is you know, this person is just like me and life is something to be valued. It doesn't matter whose it is. And that comes up very naturally. At the same time, yeah, you're reaching out to help somebody. There's probably, I think for some people, what happens if the building crumbles on me? Yeah, and... And so in so much of, an, of our life, you know, the these two things are uh, in a duel with each other, you know. And I think what we're trying to do in our Dharma practice is not just should ourselves to death, um, but really develop good motivation for helping others, so it's not, we rely on the innate thing, but we have some energy behind it to combat the selfish part, too. Yeah, And so I think this is, you know, when you listen to teachings and the reasoning behind it makes sense to you, that gives, I think, more, it helps us to create the good qualities that we haven't yet created, but it also reinforces whatever is there naturally. Yeah, which needs a lot of reinforcing because, you know, the self-centeredness, it, it uh, takes over the show pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it has no qualms about sticking its head in the middle of things and saying, I don't like this. Why are you saying that to me? Why don't you do it? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. And I was also thinking in this line about the difference between skillful means done with compassion and manipulation yeah um, because there there's some they show they have some similarities but they also have big differences and if we aren't aware of the differences we could think that we're being skillful and compassionate but we're actually manipulating okay Uh, Case in point, there is, uh, uh, for those of you, I'm sorry to break this news to you, but tomorrow is the Super Bowl, and you can't watch it. (laughs) Yeah, you're in retreat. No Super Bowl. I am terribly sorry. I know it's fair. I know that you're getting deprived of everything. But there's this huge thing about the Super Bowl now. I don't even know who's playing in it. But some some it's football, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you never know, okay. So uh, so that means um LeBron James, huh? No, he's basketball. <laughs> oh, how insulting I am. Um, <laughs> no, then this means Tom. Brady, yeah, who retired and then unretired and retired again. That's like people who can't make up their mind if they're going to ordain and then they disrobe and then they ordain again. <laughs> Don't be like that. Um, so, anyway, there's uh, the whole thing, it's really big about the commercials that are going to be aired on the Super Bowl. Okay, so there's one about M&M's. You know, M&M's have become quite political these days. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, they show M&M's in different colors, and M&M's who look different from each other. Yeah? And so, of course, that is radical leftist socialist. Yeah, so, you know, the poor M&M's, they're just trying, you know, to dance. (laughs) And now they're involved in the middle of this huge political thing, you know. Okay, but that's just one part of the commercials, okay. I don't know if they finally decided to air M&M's commercials or not. Um, But another thing is, there's this big movement now called Jesus Gets Us. No, it's called He Gets Us. And the He is Jesus. And it's people whose names are, we don't know, they're all anonymous donors because they don't want the credit. They want the credit to go to Jesus, spending multi-million dollars on two ads, during the Super Bowl. And the ads are all about Jesus. And Jesus is, you know, open to everybody. He's uh, working for women's equality. He's an immigrant. He's a refugee. He understands everybody and wants to include everybody. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I have that same thing. Yeah, what's your motivation? So, there's one guy who, who's the spokesman for the group, and he says, we're just trying to uh introduce everybody to Jesus the way he really is, and his loving nature and his inclusive nature. That, I think, is great, you know, if they teach people. But, Um, But another person who's an ex-evangelical said that she thinks what they're doing is trying to get all the young people who are into inclusiveness and everything. Yeah, Jesus was also indigenous in in addition to being an immigrant and, and impoverished and discriminated against and, you know. Anyway, so he was, um, you know, saying, we're just trying to introduce Jesus to who he is. That's great. But this other woman said, what they're doing is appealing to the young people, who Jesus gets us, he's really cool, um, to get them to become evangelicals and then tell them to vote uh, conservative Republican. So then, you know, okay, here you have something, you know. If you want to teach good values, that's good. But what is the motivation for doing it? Yeah, is it to get more people on your side, you know? And and then it made me think about how the pilgrims or whoever they were—I study. I was a history major, but I don't remember. Um, you know, who uh, came over? They came over because their way of practicing religion was not being accepted in Europe and they wanted religious freedom. And now the descendants of those people are wanting to put their values on the whole country and not give other people their religious freedom. So it's quite interesting how we human beings are and, you know, what is a good motivation? What is a manipulative motivation? What is, you know, a motivation where, yeah, where you you don't even realize what your actual motivation is because you're painting it over to yourself that you're doing something good. But actually, if we scratch the surface, you know, there's something... Selfish underneath it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you guys can find. I can find it. It's like there's this little feeling inside about basically I'm making an excuse, and it sounds like a good reason. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like I'm really, you know, cherishing others, but. You know, I coincidentally uh, either get my way or cover up my mistakes by doing it. Yeah. Anybody else see this kind of thing inside themselves? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this is all stuff that that we have to work with. I'm bringing up these things that are happening. In a society right now, because there, there's such good examples that, that make you think of, okay, that's going on out there. What's going on in here? Yeah. So anyway, that was the introduction to today's teaching. (laughs) So we should probably, um, humbly visualize the mirror field and take refuge, you know, because when you see, uh, how, how clever our self-centeredness and self, uh, and self-grasping are, you know, how clever they are, uh, then it actually, um, makes us, when we really see that and admit it and don't just say, well, everybody's that way, so it's okay, um, But when we really admit it, then it makes us much more humble. Yeah. And then when we take refuge, there's uh, much more of a feeling of, well, why am I taking refuge? Because I want to change these qualities. Yeah. And develop the good ones and do something about the rest of them. Yeah. So it's kind of like, help, Buddha. Yeah. But there's no claim that Buddha's going to save us, that he's going to swoop down and build the building by tomorrow. (laughs) Gee, yeah? If we pray hard enough, can we make that happen? (laughs) No. Okay. Okay. Maybe if we got out there and lifted a few uh, Foswall bricks, <laughs> that might be more effective. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What what human beings pray for, and how you know we there's one part of our mind that that really expects miracles. Yeah, and you know, in one way, with miracles. It's, uh, you know, there are things that happen that are, we can't explain through our regular common conventional knowledge that are dependent arisings, dependent arisings where we don't know all the causes. So there are those things, those things where we don't know the dependent arises, arisings where we don't know the causes. Those are things we call miracles. Okay. But, um, then there are other things that uh, we pray for that are kind of miraculous. But anybody with a right, with their head screwed on, <laughs> knows that that's not going to happen. You know, if I pray that you know the the Buddha Hall will be finished by tomorrow morning, yeah. You know, and I have so so much sincerity. It's for the benefit of all sentient beings, Buddha. You know, please finish it tomorrow. And if you do, I'll make a really big offering. You know, that's doing business with the Buddha, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. First you build the building, then I'll pay you by making an offering. Yeah. But is it even practical? Yeah. I want the building built by tomorrow, is that something practical? Is it possible? Well, maybe tomorrow it will be, just to show me that I'm usually wrong. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So all these things, I think, you know, these are all things that we take for granted, that we've lived amidst so much in our society that we don't question. But I think we need to question these things, you know? And especially as Buddhists, when we pray, are we praying like Christians? Is, is it because we grew up in a theistic society that now when we do prayers, it sounds like Christians, yeah, because we're praying for things for this life, and we're praying for things where we don't do anything. <laughs> but it just magically happens. Yeah, there's there's some joke about, about somebody uh, praying to God, yeah, God, may I win the lottery? God, may I win the lottery? Please, I want to win the lottery. It's so big so my family. I'll donate money to the whole community. I'll use it for the poor and oppressed. God, please, may I win the lottery? And then you hear this big booming voice from heaven that says, Buy a ticket. Yeah, You want to win the lottery? Buy a ticket. Just praying. What do you expect God to do? You don't buy a ticket, but you're supposed to win the lottery. So it's kind of like us praying, you know, please, I think about this every morning when I do Lama Chopra. Please, I, you know, please inspire me to generate this realization. Please inspire me to generate that realization. I really want those realizations. But I don't have time to sit down and do the meditation on them. Yeah, because I'm too busy building Buddha halls and learning about financial markets and, you know, all these other incredibly important things. <laughs> yeah. And even when I do have the time, well, then I'm too tired, so I need to rest. Or I need to get some exercise, or I need to, a break to think about something else. Yeah, but please, I want to have those motiv- those realizations. I I mean, I really do. But do I want to do something? Do I want to do the meditations? Mañana en la mañana. Yeah, it's on my list. At the bottom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so you see why we've been in samsara quite a long time. Okay, so let's visualize the merit field. Take refuge. Yeah. Imagine leading all those Indian beings to to the Dharma. Yeah which means being nice to the guests that come here, answering their questions, helping them find the materials they need, being patient with them when they don't do things right, which means how we want. yeah. But if we're talking about bringing uh, sentient, leading sentient beings to awakening, and uh, helping them to learn about the buddhist teachings instead of just saying we have to do something that uh, communicates you know our genuine compassion One of the qualities of a precious human life is having trust and faith and confidence in uh, the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. and unlike the some of the outer conditions where that depend on the society where we're living in, ah. Uh, This is an inner condition that has to do with our way of thinking. And I think very often we take that uh, for granted. We don't fully appreciate the fact that in previous lives we worked uh, very hard on the path and as a result, of practicing, uh, really came to trust the Buddha-Dharma Sangha. And then that ripens this lifetime in terms of our being able to meet the Dharma and practice it and be somebody who wants to learn it and appreciates it, someone who has that faith and confidence. So it's important for us to appreciate that quality That's in us this lifetime, and not take it for granted and try and enhance it to ensure not only uh, that we meet the Dharma in future lifetimes, but also that when we talk to other people and share the Dharma. Um, it will really come from a good place within ourselves. You know, a mind that uh, genuinely wants to help others because we see the liberating value of the Buddhist teachings. And we know those teachings will help people who have open minds. So based on our refuge in the Three Jewels, we want to develop the qualities that they have, such as this kind of equal uh, love and compassion for all beings, no matter whether they're friends, enemies, strangers, or whatever. And also based on our refuge, knowing that what we share on others is something good that will genuinely benefit people. So with that kind of uh, motivation, let's learn from Shanti Deva how to transform our minds. I just read the first line of verse 90 again, and after what I just said, it makes... I'm seeing something in it that I didn't see before. It says, first of all, I should make an effort to meditate upon the equality between self and others. Yeah. So instead of just praying, may I get that realization, you know, I should make an effort to do the meditation. <laughs> but Buddha, 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 please by tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah. Um okay. So equality between self and others. So this is not just the equanimity between friend, enemy, and stranger, and seeing how they're all equal. Yeah in wanting happiness and not suffering and in also helping us, but sticking ourselves in the middle of this too in a good way where we're saying, well, why do I take myself as more important than friends, enemies, and strangers? Yeah. Why? Why do I feel I'm more important than them? And then, of course, starts the Rationalization and everything else. Yeah, there's so many reasons why. Yeah, the chief reason is because I'm me. Yeah, why am I most important? Because I'm me. That's very simple. Don't you understand that? I think you understand it. You just have who me is reversed, (laughs) which is. Where Shantideva is going to take us here, exchanging the self and others, you know, and pretending that when we say, I, we're other beings looking at our old self. Okay. So quite quite interesting, yeah. for the mind that says I am so and so so you should respect me I am fully ordained you aren't you should respect me yeah okay then (laughs) then you exchange it yeah So when you say, I am fully ordained, you should respect me, the I, the me, refers to other sentient beings. And you, the you who should do the respecting, is this one, okay? And how you look at that person who's being really haughty and arrogant and pulling rank and thinking that they're special simply because they've been fully ordained. Or whatever your thing is, you know, you're the head coach of who's ever in the, in the, what is it, Super Bowl? Yeah, Super Plate. (laughs) Super Cup. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever we get proud about, you know. So you exchange and you are the person who's in the inferior position, looking at the person who's pulling rank, who's so conceited, who's des, who don't believe in themselves and they're desperate for somebody to admire them and tell them they're wonderful and give them attention. And you're looking at that person. So what are you going to say? Yeah. You're the person, the underdog. You're looking at that person who's arrogant. How do you feel about people who are arrogant? What are you going to say to them? What are you thinking? You big fat slob! Why are you thinking you're better than me? Okay, you have a little bit of privilege, but that doesn't give you any power to put other people down. Why are you so arrogant? You claim to be a Buddhist, and look how you're acting. Okay? So the you that is now other sentient beings is looking at your old self for how you appear in other people's eyes when you're being really arrogant and what they think about you. And you're talking to yourself. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah? Yeah? Is kind of it's kind of like uh you're becoming the person like when you have a conflict you're becoming the other person talking to to yourself, then you have to really look at how you appear in other people's eyes and you you have to kind of question like well, what really is this situation, yeah. Why do I see myself as less than why am I so you know jealous of i'm um, you know now I am other sentient beings looking at my old self and how you know how are people looking at me you know when I pull rank and I'm acting very haughty, how are people going to look at me, yeah the same way they did in sixth grade when they kicked me out of the group because I kicked Rosie's Knox out of the group. You know, it's the same thing. Yet yeah, you'd think there was some difference between sixth grade and now. But it's, you know, it's the same thing, isn't it? You know, I'm better than other people. Why? Because I'm me. Yeah. And here you are now, you've exchanged self and others, looking at your old self and just trashing that person because you can see clearly, you know, how disgusting their arrogant trip is. Okay? So what it's doing is it's helping us to, to see what we look like, yeah, and to really look more closely. Uh, and it's also asking us, you know, it's giving, because it's quite interesting because that is giving full vent to our jealousy, you know, because when somebody's higher than us in whatever rank we're in, you know, we're jealous, So here we get to put out all of our jealousy, but on our old self. What is that like? Yeah. And then, you know, you switch. And then this time, you know, you're exchanging self and others again. But this time, you're the party who has more status, looking at the lower party. Okay. So when we, when we have more status, how do we treat other people? Do this, do that. Listen to me. Come on, you jerk. Yeah. Don't you know any better? Yeah. Didn't your parents teach you? You're not thinking, you know. Yeah. If you do, Don't you have a brain? I mean, you know how we put people down who, who are lower rank. So here, we're seeing ourselves as the person in lower rank. You know, our old self is the person in lower rank, and we're playing the role of the person in higher rank, putting that person down. Okay. And I mean just saying basically all kinds of things that are not true. Isn't that? Yeah. When we when we criticize somebody lower than us, basically, yeah. The the things we're saying may have some truth, but we're totally ignoring the other person's good qualities and we're ignoring their value as a living being. So, you know, you exchange that way and then you get to see. You know, how you look when you're being arrogant, because now you're being arrogant over, over your old self. Yeah. And you get to see how you uh, feel when you're the put-down party, because now you're identifying with that party. The I is, is the lesser-than party you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a little bit sometimes hard to figure out who you are and how you're supposed to be looking at the other. But it's just... And this, why is it hard? Because we're so stuck in our own view. Witching it is is very difficult to think of. Yeah. But it's quite interesting. Yeah. And then... You know you look you look at your arrogant self you know, who do you think you are going around looking you know acting like that and and then you're actually having to talk to that part of you in the same way that you would talk to other people who are <laughs> arrogant, yeah, or the person who's putting themselves down who's wallowing in. You know, you're not good enough, and the world is unfair to me. Yeah. So now that uh, the that's the old you, and the you're, you've exchanged, and now you're the upper party saying, "Look, get it together and stop having that pity party and do something." Yeah. So in in that way, you're also talking to that aspect of yourself that just in you know. Kinda likes to sit and sulk. Anybody here like to sit and sulk? Yeah, only two, three people, four, five. You, you don't know yourself very well. <laughs> he sits and sulks, doesn't he? <laughs> Uh, So, you know, we get to to kind of talk to that aspect of ourselves, too, and then have to answer our own questions. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's quite difficult. It's a tricky kind of, the exchange part, I always find a bit tricky. Do you find it tricky, too? Yeah? Yeah, I find it tricky. But, you know, you keep working with it one way or another. Okay, but I still have the last three reasons for uh self and others yeah you know, being equal. so let's go over the the first six first one. everybody why well, everybody wants happiness and not suffering, equally. Second one? Yeah. Yeah. Not just like all beggars want to be happy, but it would be unfair for me to help some beggars and exclude others from my compassion. Yeah. And then third one? (laughs) With the patients, they all want alleviation from their suffering. So it would be, it would not be right to help some and exclude others from our compassion. Does that mean we have to help everybody who's a patient? We can't do that. Okay. In our present form. Yeah. So we're not beating ourselves up. Um, Saying you know, well, I should be able to help everybody who's a patient. What's wrong with me? I can't do it because sometimes we get into that thing, you know, especially when we're young and idealistic. I want to change the world, and here I am doing something. My goodness, not that much has changed, yeah. But for the one person you're changing it for, it's good. it's a big thing. Anyway, it um, you know. It doesn't mean we have to help everybody. It means in our heart, not excluding anybody from our compassion. You know, so we may not be able to help that child who is currently, you know, caught under tons of concrete. You know, we're here, they're there. We don't know where they are. We can't lift the concrete. But we can have compassion for that person, you know, and we can make a donation or do prayers for them or whatever. Okay, some way to stay connected. Um, but then we shouldn't just think about children caught, you know, in the rubble of an earthquake. What about the children in our own community who don't have enough to eat? Okay, so it's what we're trying to do is really extend our compassion there. Okay. And to see if we want people to be compassionate for us. If we have compassion for ourselves, we should share that for others. Okay. There's nothing so special about me that uh, all the compassion goes towards me. Actually, there is something special about me. Yeah. And slowly, you guys are understanding. (laughs) Okay, then the next three. Everybody's been kind to me. Okay. In this life, yeah. Maybe because of what they're doing previous lives, they will be kind in future lives. Second point. But they've also been mean to me. But if you weigh the amount of harm and the amount of benefit, they've been far more benefit, helped us much more than they've harmed us. And then third? Yeah, right. What? Die. Yeah, we're all going to die. So, what is the use of holding grudges against people who have harmed us? They're going to die. We're going to die. Nobody else knows about this. They're not going to make some plaque, you know. You know, Chubchun children forever hates, <laughs> so, you know? Yeah, who wants to memorialize my rotten anger? That's holding a grudge against somebody. Yeah. but that it's it gives us this feeling of power because in the situation where we felt like we were being harmed, we felt powerless, so holding a grudge makes us feel powerful, yeah, because anger gives us this feeling of power, which is actually quite a false feeling of power. just ask. Any inmate who's imprisoned for something they did impulsively motivated by anger, okay, so yeah, so don't hold grudges, but it's hard sometimes we gotta really work on that, yeah yeah, it's almost as if we really do want a memorial plaque, you know showing our personal suffering. You know, like they make war memorials for the people who were killed. Well, you know, you killed me with what you did. I want to make a memorial for it so I can sit and feel sorry for myself the whole rest of my life. Look what we do to ourselves. That's awful. I mean, we're the first victim of our anger when we think like that. Yeah. Okay, then the last three about the equality of self and others. First, you know, one is if there were inherently existent people who were better and worse and more important and less important and more deserving and less deserving. If there were inherently existent people like that, the Buddha would see them and recognize these people are more worthy than those people because the Buddha sees everything without distortion. Yeah. So then the Buddha would also play favorites Because he would, you know, see himself as better than other people and within other people, some people better than others and more worthy than others. But that's not the way the Buddha is. The Buddha has compassion equally for all. So if you think about it, yeah, if you're holding on to an inherently existent I, saying that, you know, I am more important because I'm me. You know, what's behind that? I'm an inherently existent person, so I have the right to to be attached to myself and to, to you know, have my rules of the universe. This is one of them. Um, yeah. Then the Buddha would see that and say, oh, yes, you really are the most important one. <laughs> yeah. Does the Buddha look at us and think we're the most important one? We all say, no. We think, yes. <laughs> yeah. oh, I remember one retreat I was doing, and I was working, this was after my stint in Italy, and I was working so hard on anger, you know? And I, in the middle of one meditation, you know, really, Yes, he—he's really a nice person. <laughs> he really, uh, yeah, like Lama said, he—he he really means well. You know, so I'm, you know, I'm—I'm I'm really trying to to moderate, you know, my anger, and uh, and uh, and one meditation, I was kind of getting there a little bit, and then I thought, oh, ribujay has clairvoyant powers. I'm sure he's looking now and seeing what a good little meditator I am. As soon as I saw that thought, it was like, back to square one. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. He's not even here in the room praising me, but I'm sure he's thinking that I'm, you know, one of his really good disciples. That's all I need to know. Oh, God. Um, that was the secret pith instruction. You're my best disciple. Ooh, I knew it all along. <laughs> you know, I've been waiting for the the menach, the... The fifth instruction on how to practice. Yeah. Um, okay. So the Buddha would see it. And then the second is, if uh, you know, there really were some people more deserving, more important, and so on. If there really were an I that's more important than these other people, um, then. All these roles would not change so much. Yeah. But they change all the time. Who we think is important, who we don't value, it's always changing. If there were inherently existent people in these inherently existent roles, then, you know, the I who's more important should always be more important. Okay. And the one, who is kind should always be kind and the one who is rotten and mean should would always be rotten and mean okay so the roles would never change yeah and yet we see that not only in terms of who's more important that changes all the time in in terms actually of how society functions you know we may think we're more important, but what society recognizes and where we get our rewards, yeah it's like it's changing all the time, and the criteria people use are uh, yeah, you think about that, you know we get rewards, even you know starting from when you're you're little, yeah, do you remember that, like in in at kindergarten, you get a reward for you know sitting still for five minutes um <laughs> uh, and and but we always were so dependent on rewards and titles as as if they have some in intrinsic meaning, yeah, so if we have this title, if we get this reward if we can plaster this piece of paper on the wall, oh, first we have to frame it with gold so that everybody notices it and then put it on the wall, you know. Then we're really worthwhile. But then when we're not the person who's chosen for the reward or somebody else gets the title, not us, then we feel, we take it to heart and we feel something's wrong with me. I just don't measure up, I am not worthwhile, I am, you know, I'm inferior in some way. Okay. But it's interesting, what are the criteria upon which people get judged as winning the award or getting the title? And do we even agree with those criteria? Yeah is interesting you know especially you look um sometimes have people who get rewards in society uh for killing other people in the military yeah you get rewards for killing other people to rescue your side actually the awards to rescue your side but it involves you know harming others to do it and, and you get recognized as a hero. Yeah. And then, oh, you look, oh, I was just a measly so and so. You know, this person was such a hero. They're getting recognized. They get, you know, they get to go to the, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the one he just gave the state of the union address because they got decorated. Yeah. Oh, why don't I ever get that? But do we ever look and do do we agree with the criteria that people, that is used for getting the award or getting the status? Do we really want to have those qualities? Or are we just looking for the status and the respect and the fame or whatever it is? Okay, Qu- quite interesting. Yeah. But you know, if there were really people who are more deserving than others, yeah, or more important than others, then these roles would never change. And the role of friend, enemy, and stranger would never change. Somebody would always be this, always be that. Yeah. So that's not the way it is either. So that again shows that uh, we can't really pull this thing of a more important than others because I'm me. Because that doesn't work in every situation, does it? And that this is what's interesting in life, isn't it? In some situations, you are the person who people look to and you are looked at as more important. Then you go across the street. Nobody knows who you are. They don't care beans about you. Yeah, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, who am I? These people aren't treating me the way I'm used to be treated. Yeah, how they should treat me. And you, oh, well, I'm in a different culture. Even though it's just the family across the street. Or even though it's just, you know, yeah. Another group, you're being in one group, you're a big shot in another group. People don't even know who you are. And yet you're like, wait a minute, come on, I'm somebody, look at me, and they're all looking at somebody else. Yeah? Who they regard as more important than you. Oh, sentient beings are so stupid, you know, they don't realize I'm actually more important than that person. Or if you're the other one who every time you go into a situation is, uh uh-uh. I'm I'm so shy. I'm I'm worthless. Nobody's gonna like me. Um, uh, yeah, and, and and then you go into some situation where somebody's smiling at you and paying attention to you. You're thrown for a loop. How do I act? Yeah, I'm not used to acting friendly. <laughs> you know, I'm used to acting you know remember that that um many years ago it was the rage that the f- drawing of the little girl with big blue with big lonely eyes you know remember that yeah yeah my generation remembers yeah yeah all you young people you need know, to yeah anyway it was kind of the fat it was kind of like bugs bunny into You know, Bugs was still more famous than she was, but, um, okay. But again, you know, if that were true, none of the, you know, if we change situations, then all of a sudden we're we're in a different role and we don't know who to be. Oh, somebody's paying attention. Am I supposed to be somebody now and stand up straight, you know? Okay, very interesting how our mind works, isn't it? You know, it's like you look at the situation, you form all sorts of opinions about the situation, and one of them is, how should I act in this situation so that I don't get criticized? Yeah, or other people, it's, how should I act in this situation so I will get a lot of attention? You know, people have different MOs, what they're, they're doing. So, you, you know, you get the kid in class who, you know, the only way they know to get attention is by having crying and screaming and pushing somebody. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, th- that kind of kid. I remember, I don't know if, if you two did it, but the, those, kinds, those kids, I tried to give them some responsibility in the classroom. You know, because if you get the, the kid who's acting out on your side, he's actually a leader. Yeah. And you can, other kids will kind of look and say, oh, he used to spit at the teacher, and now look, he's helping. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, these things change all the time, which, if they were inherently existent, they couldn't. Okay, Because something inherently existent does not depend on any other factors, which means it doesn't depend on cause and effect, it doesn't depend on parts, it doesn't depend on name and labeling. It's out there in the universe totally under its own power. And what's weird is we feel that that's who we what we're like. That we're out there and i just exist totally under my own power and actually we're just a conglomeration of causes and conditions yeah and we have totally the wrong view of ourselves that we're sure is actually the right view welcome to samsara and then the third reason this is on the ultimate side is if there were an inherently existent i and an inherently existent other then you would always be i and the other person would always be other and the analogy here is then this where we are is this side of spring valley and Over there is that side of Spring Valley, right? Yeah. So, where are you on Spring Valley? We are on the north side of Spring Valley. They're on the south. This is the, you know, this is this side of the valley. That's that side of the valley. Okay. Now, if these things were inherently existent, this side would always be this side, but if you go stand over there and look, then oh, look, over there, you know, we're here, over there, there's a monastery on that side of the valley. yeah, look how it looks, yeah, oh, they have a piece of trash on the ground you know, however you, you tend to look at things, yeah? Um, and, and we could never distinguish this and that. You could never be there and say the abbey is on on, you would always still say the abbey is on this side of the mountain, this side of the valley, but you're on this side of the valley now. Okay. Are are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, just the interchange between this and that, this and that, and how um, we couldn't make that distinction. You know, something would always be this, something would always be that in an inherently existent world. And similarly, you know, I would always be I, yeah, you would always be you, but we know that that's not the case because you think I, and you look here and think you. Yeah, right? So this is the whole idea behind ex- exchanging self with others is, you know, instead of feeling so certain I is here, you are there, this and that, you know, that can never be exchanged. You see this and that can be exchanged. And then you say you here and I there. And then from the viewpoint of I, you look back at yourself in the different relationships. Okay, is this making some sense to you? Uh, this last point I really like because the first time I heard this teaching, uh, Sankam Rinpoche, Sainship Circum Rinpoche, was giving it, and Alex was the translator. And Rinpoche was talking about, you know, he was using, I don't know, mountain or valley, but this side and that side and you and I. And he got Alex so confused... Because Alex is trying to translate this. And when Rinpoche says, I, he's not sure who I is and who you is when he's translating. And he was getting so confused. And we were just laughing and laughing. And Rinpoche said, you don't even know who you are anymore. (laughs) Alex said, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I guess that, that maybe is part of the effect of the meditation. You don't have the strong thought of I so much. Yeah. Okay, so let's pause here if there's comments or questions. Everything's perfectly clear. No, it's not perfectly
1: clear. Yes.
2: So wow, I'm getting a little bit confused with the outlines of the meditations because I've heard teachings on the meditation on equalizing self and others which have different outlines. Mm-hmm. So, if, um, if you look,
0: yeah, um, because I've i I've seen one of the ones with different outlines. If you look more closely at it, the meanings basically come to the same point. Yeah. Do you want to read your outline?
2: Yeah, I don't have it ready now. But one part of it is—is is, um, this comes came from Keshidortu um, Damdo, and he he puts in there disadvantages of self cherishing and the advantages of stuff cherishing others as well.
0: Yeah, that's actually the next meditation after exchanging self and others. Okay. So the disadvantages of self-centeredness, the benefits of cherishing others. That's the next meditation. So, if he included it in this one, that's okay, no problem.
2: And I think the last
0: three were
2: um, remembering this, the like uh, the kindness of of others, like like, a, and then altruism and then bodhicitta were his last three steps.
0: Yeah. Well, we have the kindness of others things. in the second one.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I don't know how he presented it. Yeah, but often if you if you look at these things, there aren't uh, such big differences, and people do count things in different ways. Yeah. This this is uh, yeah one thing that I'm learning from uh, doing the this series, uh, the Library of of Wisdom and Compassion, is I will write something. Yeah. And and then uh Geshila would read it and he'd who said that? (laughs) I said, Geshila, I didn't make it up. You know, I heard it in one of my teach in one of the teachings I've received. And he said, No, it's not like that. That's wrong. And then we had this big thing over the meaning of substantial existence, according to Satanakas. Oh, that's why I have no hair. I, <laughs> I pulled it all out. <laughs> yeah. Because, oh, and substantial existential imputed in this school and that school. But why are they, do they all sound different? Well, first of all, there's different schools, but then the big thing they don't tell you is the yikcha are different. Yeah. So Pension Sonam Drakpa said this. So. If you're from Losaling, there's God, and next to God is Sanamdrava. <laughs> <son of> <laughs> if you're from Jangse, you know, <laughs> next to God is uh, Chuky Gelson, And Sarah J. and, and Jangse are both Chucky Gelson. Okay. If you're—who if who else is there? Oh, if you're from Gomong, then there's God and Yangyam Shekma. And you know what? They say different things. Yeah. And when you learn something, it's quite interesting as Westerners because not all the texts are translated. So the teachers teach us the meaning of the text, usually from the yidcha of the college, uh, that they have attended because that's how they learned it. So we can't read the yidcha or the, or the root text or anything. So we think, Okay, he taught it like this. This is the way it is. Yeah. And then I give something, uh, you know, then I, I, I is, you know, has to pass sonam, drapa, drakpa. But then I, I give it to, to, uh, Sange Kadro, or I give it to Venerable Sepal, and I say, uh, uh, Chuki Gelsen says it this way. What you said is wrong. This is really like this and like this. And this is just within the Galu tradition. (laughs) So you can imagine what happens, you know, just the differences in the meaning of words, the ways of explaining things, the different way of listing things, you know. I I was so glad His Holiness, um, when he was teaching Tantra, he he was talking about um, how different uh, lamas in their texts talking about how to, how to visualize something or on the completion stage, what's going on with your channels and winds and drops. How they often describe things differently because sentient beings are different. Wow. You know, that completely saved me because I was listening, wait a minute, the last time I heard teaching on it, they said this and this. Now it's this and this. I said, oh, well, sentient beings have different, you know, subtle nervous systems and different teachers, you know, and then also you get the different tantras and the way they explain the completion stage. There's a lot of commonality and there's a lot of difference too. Yeah. So, um, Yeah. So you get all these debates all through, yeah, and
3: uh, yeah, and to kind of <laughs> and quite a scene when we have inter-monastic meetings. Yeah. Then you, then that's when we get exposure to the other's viewpoint, and initially it would be like. Like this, and then eventually you kind of thaw out, and begin to see the waypoint from their part, and but at the same time not fit quite well with yours. But uh, so just so you see the different perspectives, and then you ask for yeah. well, what's the reason behind it, what's the scriptural authority,
2: mm-hmm.
3: authority behind it, and then you begin to see the source where it's coming from, but how it could have slanted a little bit in your way of understanding. It.
0: Yeah. Like that? Yeah. How if you look at it this way yes. instead of this way? This way makes perfect sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: One one example would be whether mm. truth of cessation is emptiness or not.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I bow down to truth cessation. I don't know whether you're a, a, an emptiness or you can't be a conventional truth. But Sunandrapa says it's a conventional truth. Who? Sunandrapa. No, no yeah, not conventional. Sunandrapa says it's uh, that he he says that true cessation is not an emptiness. Yeah, it's so not then a, you say to is him that. But it's
3: ultimate truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: In yeah. the Prasangika system. Yeah. yeah, All of them agree that it is uh, ultimate ultimate truth, truth, but not necessarily emptiness. Right, but mm. so
0: then do you have two ultimate truths? You can't have one, two ultimate truths. <laughs> there's one, there's not two. Okay, well then there's two, then, then true cessation must be a conventional truth because there's only two truths. And it's there's not two ultimate truths, so then it must be, a, but it can be a conventional truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a big, and then the whole thing about what the word mind means. Oh my goodness, Geshe Zopa used to go into that, so, and I remember bringing it up with you, and you you hadn't heard about this, but somehow, in the in the Sarah J uh, camp. You know, they look at the word, the meaning of the word mine and do all this, you know, here's what Sanam Drapa says, here's, you know, what mine is. It's very confusing. And I asked Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, what did the Theravadas, you know, the Pali tradition, what is mine? And he said, oh, it's just what we naturally mean when we say the word mine. And, and then the Galupas have, you know, all this philosophy, debate, everything. <laughs> and yeah, it just means what in mine, you know?
1: <laughs> so, yeah. So earlier you were asking, why am I the most important? Yeah. So what often comes up in response to that question is, because I'm the only one who knows me, and I'm the only one who can help me. And I can't really, I don't know other people in the same way that I know myself. So how can I help them? So how do you counter that? It seems like a, quite a convincing argument. It's not that I'm objectively more important. It's just that I have the information that's needed. Yeah. Do you understand help. yourself well? <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, Well, that's kind of what we're told often is, you know, who knows your mind better than you, other than the Buddha, maybe. But, yeah, are there other people then? Yeah.
0: Or are you the only one on the planet?
1: That knows my mind. Uh,
0: But do you know your mind? I don't know about you, but the more I practice, the more I know that I don't know my mind.
1: Do others know more?
0: Sometimes they do. (laughs) Believe it or not. (laughs) Sometimes others see us very clearly in ways that we are totally blind. Okay, anybody have any examples of that happening that they want to share? Okay, it's embarrassing, but yeah. Uh, I think
4: in my first year here, I went away for some teachings um, for a week, and then I came back, and I was on a topic I wasn't very familiar with. And I wrote you a very long email with about maybe you know ten or so questions, or just a lot of a lot of questions. And then uh, you didn't respond to the email, but when I was opening the door for you one time, you go, are you looking for attention? That was your <laughs> verbal response to me. <laughs> Were you looking for attention? Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for answers, but I was also looking for looking attention. For attention, yeah.
0: Yeah. So very often people do see things about us That we, that we don't. Hmm? And when you say, you know, I'm the only one that knows myself, so I'm the only one who can help me. You mean when you were, when you were a newborn baby, you helped yourself? (laughs) Yeah. Did you feed yourself? Did you cover yourself? Did you teach yourself manners? Yeah. Did you console yourself when you fell down and hurt your knee? Um, yeah, I mean, no, you weren't the only one who took care of you. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think when we look at our young years, other people took care of us more than we took care of them. And I think when we're old Older, too, whatever age we are, yeah, we receive much more than we give. So just saying, you know, I'm the only one who can take care of me, boy, I don't know about you, but if I said that, I'm in big trouble. Okay, no lunch today. I'm not going to cook lunch right now. So, Okay. Then, No lunch today. <laughs> that means no cabbage, and no no uh, mashed potatoes, <laughs> no corn or, or frozen peas. <laughs>
4: uh huh. I'm being Wondering, and I'm not so that I'm not clear uh, in the sequence of how afflictions arise. Where this self-centeredness comes up in relation between like the ignorance and the inappropriate attention, and then the afflictions, because self-centeredness isn't an affliction, but yeah, but I think
0: this, this we can debate about this, um, <laughs> but I think they sneak it in because. In the middle scope, when Jason Kopp is talking about grasping at I, he says we grasp at I an inherently existent, and right after that, there is attachment to self. But attachment to self is not put as a separate affliction. It's kind of, it's not the same as... As self-grasping, but it's in there, because as soon as we grasp it ourselves, it's, you know, I'm I'm more important. Yeah, so I think that's how you get the core self-centeredness that is, excuse me, uh, is an affliction because it, it is attachment. It's attachment to self. But that isn't the self-centeredness that bodhisattvas disdain because that self-centeredness says is just working for my own awakening and doesn't care about others. And that self-centeredness is not an affliction. It's an, an inferior obscuration. But there's only two obscurations. One is afflictive, one is cognitive, but there's also this inferior one, even though there's only two. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So I think that's how they sneak it in right after the self grasping is attachment to self. Yeah. What do you think, Kishala? <laughs> You see, I don't have any yikcha to refer to, and I don't have any spiritual quotations to refer to. This is just my thought. Okay, so, yeah.
3: I've left my bias to yikta way ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was sticking to it until I got my kishi because otherwise I wouldn't be offered kishé. Geshe,
0: right? you have to talk
3: louder. I see. I, I left my bias towards Geshe way long ago, but not not before I became kishi because <laughs> if if I had exposed this, then I wouldn't I wouldn't get kishi I would be thrown away.
0: Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> that said, yeah, uh, this self self-centeredness. If we make in English uses, if we make di- distinction between self-centeredness and self-cherishing. Then we could make some case like Venerable has done, mm-hmm. uh, but in the in the Laman itself, it uses the same term, rang chenzin, shen chenzin. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. virtually the same. Some changing, changing, right? And in the eyes of the Bodhisattvas, rang chenzin is a thorn, it's a great uh, uh, hurdle. Uh, A great what? A great hurdle, Hurdle. Uh, yeah, obstacle.
0: Obstacle. Yeah,
3: hurdle.
0: Hurdle.
3: (laughs) Yeah, hurdle. Yeah, great
0: hurdle.
3: (laughs) Okay. Great hurdle in the uh, in the way on on their way to bodhisattva practice.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, But uh, if we look from bodhisattva's perspective. And look at the Shrivakas; mm-hmm. they would be called up to have self cherishing and or, or self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for them, that served them on their path. Mm. Instead of having to share on it, that's something they cherished it, and that's what got them along. Uh, Yet, in the eyes of the bodhisattvas, that was not the preferred path. So that was self-centeredness. And self-centeredness pursued in that perspective, where you see afflictions as being the main obstacles, and for you to get rid of the obstacles, then self-centeredness in that perspective will carry one along the path, at least to the liberation. But for us ordinary beings, if we bank on that and saying self-centeredness can be okay in some occasions, then because of our not so grounded foundation, mm-hmm. we could very easily slip into, uh, everything about me. Yeah. And, and that coated with afflictions. So that's how uh being self-centered uh, could be a lifesaver of a less uh, higher quality, yeah. but at the same time, uh, it's not something to bank on and say, yes, I could be self-centered and yeah. still be safe, because at our level, it's a, a slippery slope that it could easily lead us into yeah. afflictions.
0: Yeah. I kind of see it as as two levels of self-centeredness, mm-hmm. you know? the one that that is just you know attachment to the happiness of this life attachment to samsara and then the ones uh, you know that that uh, cares only for our own liberation which like you say for the shravakas that's a, a helpful factor yeah
3: but in the for the bodhisattvas it's... Despite having bodhicitta within them, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe even after they become Aryas through to certain levels, through to the eighth level, they would have self-attachment. Yeah, in some some levels, but they could they, those would not be called self-centeredness mm-hmm. in 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 the spirit that they are kind of talking uh, down on it.
0: Say that again. They would have what? I meant
3: to say that bodhisattvas have self cherishing, self attachment.
0: Uh huh.
3: Uh, even maybe uh-huh. even after becoming aryas. Uh huh. But that wouldn't be self centeredness.
0: Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I I get confused when people use self cherishing. Yes. Um, it, it that term falls amongst. The the terms that, that were used early on that I think are not correct, yeah, because people hear that, you know, oh, self-cherishing bad, which means I should hate myself, you know. So I that's why I think self-centeredness is, is better.
3: Concept, it's way better to call it self-centeredness. That is uh, something to be uh, warned against, to be... Uh, uh, to counteract, instead of calling it self-cherishing, because self-cherishing needs to be cultivated. So calling it self-cherishing, as Venerable said, is quite uh, misleading. Mm -hmm. So calling it self-centeredness. And at our level, of course, most of the problems come from self-centeredness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, our level. Anyway, I think we understand each other. <laughs> okay. Okay, so... Oh, do you have something? Anyway, Okay. So let's dedicate. Yeah. Geshe-la, can I? And everybody else, too, because I noticed that many people use the term self-cherishing when they're giving talks, many of you. Um... That's really a very confusing term for people, because it many people hear it as, you know, if I care it all for myself, that's wrong, I should blame myself for everybody, everything I'm nothing, I should just sacrifice for everybody else, you know and uh and that's really misleading, so that's why I think because we should cherish ourselves in the sense of we have the buddha nature we have potential it doesn't mean everything we do is right or good but we should respect ourselves yeah and cherish ourselves in that way but that doesn't mean we have to be arrogant and selfish about it another term is is guru devotion yeah please say relying on a spiritual mentor yeah cuz again you know, Lama Tenta, I mean it's relying on a spiritual teacher and guru devotion to Westerners. Well guru is like, you know, also sitting next to God there. You know, it's getting pretty crowded up there and they're and they're all men, you know, <laughs> and they're gonna organize a football team. <laughs> you know. Maybe Lucifer's doing the same thing. I don't know. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so guru, you know, next to God. And devotion, (laughs) you know, it's like I lay myself down. I will do whatever you say. I am devoted. I only listen to you, you know. I do everything for you. I only listen to you. I, I'm completely, uh, I can't think for myself, you know, because I'm, I'm so devoted. And, uh, and, you know, my teacher may have said something five years ago in one context, but I'm hearing it five years later in another context, and I think I know what it means, and so I'm doing that. But... The, if I understood what my teacher said before, oh, mm-mm. okay. So it, it, it involves this. Does the word devotion, yeah, have some sticky? No reasoning,
1: no logic behind
0: it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas what you were talking about were the reasons. You said you know, look at the qualities, and they're more numerous than what you're self-centered mind picks out as faults. You know, there's a reason, and there's a reason for, in in terms of benefiting our own practice. But if we just think devotion, I mean, that's what I felt at the beginning when I first heard about it was, yeah? And, I mean, this this is the kind of attitude, uh, okay, I'm going to go on my, my, But this is the attitude that leads to a lot of scandals, you know. And His Holiness said, you know, if you teach this to beginners, that the guru is Buddha and you are devoted to the guru in the same way if as if Shakyamuni Buddha were sitting in front of you, um, His Holiness said that's poison for people who don't understand it properly. Yeah. So, there's... When this whole there was this whole big thing about one scandal in one uh, one Tibetan group, and uh, and a lot of other rinpoches were kind of lamas uh, were weighing in on it, uh, and there was one lama who very re- well respected, uh, not a monk, but he he said, you know, if you're if you have tantric samaya and your guru wants sex, you give him sex. Oh, gosh. Okay. You know, I don't trust that person anymore. You know? To me, any person that would say that was, you know, I mean, that's his opinion. That's how he looks at it. I'm sure there's other people who look at it. If you are a yogi on the completion stage, What he said is totally true. Okay. So he's talking to one group of people. I'm thinking about actually a more numerous group of people. (laughs) Because the people who he's talking to don't come to me crying and confused. Yeah. I would like to give... Have the people who come to me who are suffering go to him and say, "Okay, then, what in the world do you mean?" Yeah. Anyway, okay, I'm off my my um, my soapbox. Yeah, I mean, I have to get on it every once in a while. I just came back from a trip. You know, every time I'm on a trip, m- not this kind of trip. <laughs> the other kind of trips. This thing comes up, and these people were asking me, and I am the sole, sometimes it feels like the sole defender of Tibetan Buddhism. When people from other traditions come to me and say, this, 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 how are we supposed to understand this? You know, go talk to those llamas and ask them why, please. I do not understand. I cannot explain their behavior. Okay. Yeah. So this comes up every time I go on a trip. So I hadn't talked about it yet. Yeah. It came up. You heard it too. Yeah. Yeah. And this was usually it doesn't come up in Singapore. This time, it came up in Singapore by multiple people. Yeah, it used to be more a Taiwan-Malaysia thing. This time, it was also Singapore. So, okay, we better dedicate. (laughs) Otherwise, I will go jump from one soapbox to the other. (laughs)